Hello and welcome to The Briefing, where we get you up to speed every morning with the news you need to know. This is Friday, 19 of June. I'm Jamila Risby and this morning I'm joined by Jam Fran. Good morning, Jam. No Tom this morning. I'm not going to tell you what I've done. <laughs> okay, we ate Tom. That's what happened. We were hungry <laughs> today on The Briefing. Look, it's, it's not true. He, he's coming back a little bit later in the show. He's alive and well, trust me. Today on The Briefing, Tom and Jan take a deep dive on voluntary assisted dying. Yeah, we're going to take a look at whether... It's working. Uh, it's it's actually one year since the law was introduced in the state of Victoria. So we're going to kind of give it a bit of a report card and see what's working and what's not. That is a little bit later in the show. Before that, though, the news story is worth knowing. What is making news this morning? Jamila Rizvi. Turns out it's you. Jamila Rizvi. I won't lie, Jan. It wasn't the most pleasant news to read of my inner city lefty latte this morning. I always pinged you as a long black lady, but no, there you go. Proven wrong. Because it seems like every day this week there is another person caught up in the Victorian Labor Party branch stacking scandal, but to be fair, I didn't think that today you would be one of them, Jam. This front page of the Oz, we've got uh, another cracking exclusive by John Ferguson. Assassin used media pals to destroy rivals. Now, on Jamila Rizvi, who's on the front page of the Oz, do you know Jamila Rizvi? She worked for Rudd and Gillard and was close to Kate Ellis, spelt with an A, sick. Um, she's an awful piece of work. He refers to Jamila Rizby. She would hate what moderates in Labor stood for. So that is uh, a Sky News anchor there talking about text messages sent between former Victorian Minister Adam Somurek and Federal Labor MP Anthony Byrne. What what was that about, Jam? Yeah, I think it's important to say first up, I wasn't branch stacking anyone. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's let's clear that out of the way. But what? How is it that you've sort of become embroiled in this story? Honestly, Jan, I couldn't tell you. About 10 years ago, probably, I worked as an advisor to the Gillard and the Rudd governments in Canberra. And as it turns out, that's enough, apparently, to have these powerful, well, frankly, dudes go after you when the proverbial poo is hitting the fan for them. So have you met either of the two men who were exchanging messages there, and that was um, former Victorian Minister Adam Somurak and and, um, federal backbencher Anthony Byrne. Have you met either of them? I don't believe so. Right. Okay. So you've just come up disparagingly in their text messages. I have a feeling there are a whole lot more messages going to come out between various people in the Victorian Labor Party using some pretty awful language, particularly around women. Oh, man. I mean, this this story sort of just keeps snowballing, doesn't it? Because it started on, on Sunday with um, a 60-minute story. They broke the story that revealed allegations of branch stacking in, in Victorian Labor. And the small business minister, that's Adam Somurek, who was one of the texters there of the messages, he's been sacked. Um, several other ministers have either been sacked or resigned as well, and it's engulfed federal Labor as well. So who knows right. how many... The federal ha- Labor Party's actually taken over the Victorian branch, which might not sound like a big deal to the average punter, but that is huge in political terms. So this is an absolute mess, and I think we're going to see a whole lot more tit for tat. We'll bring you the story on Monday of someone else that's been disparaged by text messages possibly, but hopefully not. Some mixed news for future university students this morning. Fees are getting a massive overhaul, which sounds kind of promising, 
but the changes will have different impacts depending on what you want to study. Yeah, some courses are about to get a fair bit cheaper. So nursing, maths, uh, psychology degrees, they'll be slashed to $3,500 a year, which is about half what they used to cost. Rather than binging on Netflix, binge on studying, binge on looking at a nursing degree. That's the most uncool thing to say and it makes me not want to study at all. Thank you, Dan Tian, the Federal Education Minister. I always love it when politicians use words that they're unfamiliar with and pronounce them with a real pause before and after. (laughs) Binge. Binge? Don't binge on Netflix, binge on studying, kids. Um, That's good news for the people who will be making uh, those Netflix shows, folks. Uh, If you are wanting to study arts or communications degrees, those courses will be doubling in price to a whopping $14,500 a year, with law and economics also getting a price rise, rising by 30%. Yeah. Important to know, Jan, that this only applies to new students before we panic anyone, which is obviously great news if you're already halfway to being a lawyer and don't want to pay more, but by no means any discounts for the budding mathematicians out there. Yeah, I guess if you are in the middle of a degree, depending on the degree that you're doing, it might, this might be good news or bad news for you. Yeah, um, right. What did you study, Jan? Well, I studied two arts degrees and my, my parents have them framed on our wall. In They've got them engraved in gold plaques. And I said, Mum, I didn't do medicine. Chill out. You've got <laughs> both of my arts degrees on the wall. Why have you done that? Well, they're pricey now. Yeah, well, yeah, they're very pricey. I mean, look, our universities are, you, you know, they're they're in trouble. They're in trouble. Um, I think they're set to lose something like $16 billion in the next three years. Many aren't eligible for JobKeeper. There's a huge reliance on international students. And, of course, a lot of international students can't come into the country. So they really have to, um, I guess, pivot, for lack of a better word, or think of new ways to to keep students within their walls. From university to the jobs that you will hopefully, fingers crossed, be getting once you graduate. We also really need to be creative about looking at new jobs, new kinds of jobs, new industries that can be developed that are specifically um, able to employ young people. That's Catherine Ellis, the head of Victoria's Youth Affairs Council. And we're seeing that lack of work for young people play out in the unemployment figures already. Those figures reaching a 20-year high this week of 7.1%. Yeah, we we know that around 820,000 jobs have been lost in the last two months and that women and young people are hit the hardest. Now, to give you a bit of sort of context on that, the youth unemployment rate jumped 2% to 16.1%. That is well more than the national average of 7.1%. Coronavirus is the reason people have lost their jobs. And it'll take us, we estimate, around two years to get back just to where we were when that happened. A worrying forecast from the PM there. We may have flattened that health curve, Jan, but the unemployment numbers are set to get even more dire. And I think something that's really important to note in amongst all these numbers is sometimes they also don't capture the full extent of the problem Mm. because particularly for young people, often they'll just stop looking for work at all. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of a double whammy because some of the jobs just aren't there. But also we've got to take into account underemployment, which is, which is the other sort of hidden figure. Uh, in, in these figures, if you work one day a week, you're counted as employed. Um, but is that really 
helpful to you? Are you making enough money in that situation? So I think we've got to take into consideration underemployment as well. Another one of Trump's former top advisers has gone to town on his old boss. He joins a growing club of ex-staffers spilling the tea on the American president. I don't think he's fit for office. I, I don't think he has the competence to carry out the job. Oi, that is John Bolton there, not mincing any words. Uh, he used to be the national security advisor in the US. Now, he's written a book claiming that Trump asked China to help him with the 2016 election. There really isn't any guiding principle uh, that I was able to discern other than uh, what's good for Donald Trump's re-election. Naturally, Donald Trump went to Twitter to deliver a formal, nuanced and very presidential response. He called Mr Bolton a wacko and a sick puppy, Jan. Yes, he did. And look, John Bolton is not the first person to leave the White House and come out against Donald Trump. I think John Kelly, who was the former White House Chief of Staff, did the same thing earlier this year as well. But I do wonder whether or not it will actually affect Trump um, in any way in, in the lead up to the election in November. All right, just something a little bit lighter. Across the Dutch. How's that? Was that a good New Zealand Across accent? Across the Dutch. Across, Across the Dutch. The Dutch. Someone's found a loophole in NZ's COVID hotel quarantine setup. When the person was ready for discharge, he was asked for a forwarding address only to tell the official that he didn't have one because he was homeless. He hadn't come back from overseas. He just joined the back of the queue two weeks ago uh, and spent uh, a fortnight getting three square meals in a bath every day on the government. So this dude, Jan, who has clearly been sleeping rough, doing it tough, sees a big lineup to get into the five-star hotel for people returning from overseas and getting quarantined, and he's just decided to give it a crack, right? I feel like he deserves a permanent room at the <laughs> hotel or a plaque of some kind. I mean, forget Jacinda Ardern. Maybe this guy is New Zealand's new national hero, you know? Hey, we've all been trying to get Jacinda Ardern over here, right? Maybe we could get this. <laughs> who wouldn't do that, though? Like, I mean, any reasonable person who saw that opportunity would probably, you know, give it a red-hot go. We should be rewarding that kind of ingenuity. <laughs> Up next, we're going to hear from Tom. He'll be back in the seat. Turns out we didn't eat him. And he and Jan, who will be sticking around, are taking a deep dive on voluntary assisted dying. They want to know, is it working? Should all Australians have access to this option? Just a warning, this topic is a little bit heavy, but it is an important one. Do you worry about a long and painful death? or watching your parents or your grandparents go through one. If you could choose when and how to end your life, would you take up that option? Yeah, it's a massive question. Hi, Jan. Today marks one year since you could use a voluntary assisted dying program in Victoria. It's the first Australian state to enact voluntary assisted dying laws. So the question is, will all the other states and territories allow this by the time it's your or my turn to die. Here are some key moments from the, the debate so far. You can't ignore the fact that so many people, because they're denied a more dignified, a more peaceful option, they're having to choose lonely, violent options. And I just don't think that's a choice that anyone should have to make. A bill to legalise voluntary assisted dying has been voted down in the New South Wales Upper House. The Parliament has just made history. This is a day of compassion a day of giving control to those who are terminally ill and in the terminal phase of their life. 
In the first six months of the Victorian laws being passed, 52 people died using the scheme. Now, it's expected that when the numbers come through for the whole year, it'll be triple that, so somewhere around 150. Yeah, and last night on the project, I did a story on this and I interviewed a Melbourne woman, Marita, about the passing of her dad, Keith, and found out what that was like for her. And then I was just rubbing his back and I just said, Dad, you go with so much love. And then he just drifted away. Dad had the death that he wanted. It was peaceful, it was with dignity, but it was the hardest thing that I'll ever have. It was hard. It was very hard. But it was an act of love. So for Marita, it was the right thing to do, but it was extremely emotional for her personally because her dad asked her to take sole responsibility of all the five siblings. She was the one to actually be there with him. Um, he actually said he couldn't have the other siblings there because there'd be too much love in the room. Oh, man. And he wouldn't be able to take the medication. Yeah, that's a lot to have to deal with, both as someone going through that and also the daughter of someone going yeah. through that. Now, the majority of people that died under the scheme, they took a sort of a deadly medication and in a small number of cases, the doctor injected it. To be eligible, the patients have to be adults living in Victoria. They have to have a terminal illness and less than six months to live. They also have to consult two doctors and this includes a specialist in the condition that they have. Then the application is reviewed by the Voluntary Assisted Dying Board and the medication is dispensed by the state health authority. So there are a few hoops there to get through before you actually end up going through it. Yeah, so let's speak to someone who's been through that process. Adam helped assist his mum, Lorraine, to die under the scheme. She passed away in March after a battle with cancer. What was the process like for you and your family? Um, it was a very odd um, feeling. The... Um uh, feeling of giving someone something to make them pass away within five minutes is very different, um, but it was also good that mum had the opportunity to not suffer any longer or anything like that. After seeing my father pass away and he was just slowly, slowly whittling away to nothing, basically, um, and all he wanted to do was pass away and he couldn't, um, it was good that mum had the uh, that opportunity. Adam, what was that moment like for you? I know it's very personal and, and very intimate, but can you talk us through what that actually looks like for a family to go through something like that? It's a bit surreal, to be honest. Um, normally when someone passes away, they're, you know, if they're passing away for old age or something like that, they're slowly, slowly, slowly they lose abilities to talk and things like that. So basically there's nothing left of them when they die anyway. But with mum, she could still walk, she could still talk, but she was in pain and things like that anyway. Mm. Um, so to just have it end like that was odd, but you could see the relief on her face and also the relief for, for all of us because we knew that she was suffering for so long. Talk us through how you were sort of feeling in that moment. Um, it was good for us and also good for her that she had full control over, you know, when she wanted to take it. So when she knew the time was right, she said to us, no, it's, it's, it's time now. So then, then we, yeah, we put the processes in to make that all happen. And Adam, what about the overall process of having to apply, having to consult with two doctors, including an oncologist and the way the medication was delivered? 
Were there any challenges or were there any parts of that process that you felt didn't work right or could be improved on? No. She already had it basically lined up for when the time came that there, this option was there. They educated everyone, spoke to everyone, offered us support. It wasn't a clinical process. It was more of a personal thing, which, which I thought was great. The biggest concern for people that don't think this is the right thing to do is that old people will feel pressured to end their lives, that they'll feel like they're potentially eating up too much of the family's money or that they're a burden on their family member. And and normalising this process could increase pressure on those vulnerable people to end their lives. Do you think there's any any risk of that? And does the process have ways of checking that, that that's not the case? Yeah, for sure. Well, part of the process is that the person that is dying has to be fully aware and everything like that to say, yes, they want the medication. They have to be saying that multiple times over a course of uh, a few weeks or months, I think it is. It's not just you ring up, you know, in the morning, say, yeah, I want it, and then it's brought to you, and then that's it. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly long process, and I think they're doing a great job of the way they're trying to, to foolproof it. You know, for, my, for my mum, who wanted full control, or she liked to control everything in her life, this option was great for her because she could control it right to the very end. She knew that, yep, I'm done. It's it's time to make that happen, and, and she made the call to make it happen. She was a little bit scared at the very start because she thought that maybe she was doing the wrong thing. She goes, oh, she asked us kids, am I doing the right thing? We all just said to her, it's, it's totally your call. We can't make that call for you. But we support you whichever way you want to go. And, um, yeah, that's obviously the way she chose to go. So if dying can be a good process, um, this is probably a good way to to go, I think. That was Adam Foreman there from Victoria who had a positive experience um, with voluntary assisted dying, helping his mum there. Taking a look at the national picture, though, it really differs from state to state. So WA is the only other state to have passed euthanasia laws. They will come into force mid-next year. Queensland was close, but now it's actually pushed the issue back until after the October state election. A vote on Tassie legislation has also been delayed until later this year. It looks like some of the states just want to keep pushing back, pushing back. Mm. New South Wales, it's a firm no. The state's upper house actually rejected an assisted dying bill in 2017. And South Australia has knocked back euthanasia legislation 15 times. Yeah, so it's clearly a difficult issue for the states to wrangle with. Um, the question is whether the Victorian experience, having had these laws in operation for a year, will, will change anything. Dr. Cam McLaren is an oncologist. He's a, a Victorian doctor. Uh, he's the doctor that's actually assisted in, in more of these deaths than any other. He's assisted in 26 deaths and was there in person for 21 of them. Cam, thanks so much for joining us. What has this experience been like for you as a doctor? Um, interesting. Um, it's, it's been, I think in essence, it's been an absolute privilege and honor to be in that position to help people when they need it most. Um, I think the helping is, is going to be debated by perhaps some of your listeners, but, um, I think this is, you know, something that people are asking for that they, their families really appreciate. And, um, it has been really quite rewarding experience to be honest. Why did you decide to do it? Why did you decide to kind of go down this road and provide this service? Yeah, good question. I, I don't think I ever actually did. 
I think what what happened originally is that um, one of my pa- – I mean, I, I signed up for the training early. I think I was quite naive and felt as though all of us were going to provide this service for our patients. And early on, one of my patients did request this, and we went through the process, and, and that was my first case. And then I became aware of some difficulties that many other patients were having in trying to access it. And um, there was one case in particular who'd been trying for four months to find a doctor willing to act as their uh, coordinating practitioner. And it turned out they lived two kilometres from my house. And I just found that, I guess, kind of heartbreaking that um, this is a legislative right that people should be able to access, but we're just not able to. So I, I let the the, the navigators at Peter McCallum um, know that if they were ever in need and couldn't find anyone and they had desperate cases, then to please let me know and I'd be happy to see them. Um, and it just kind of, I guess, snowballed from there. Yeah. Well, what's it like um, for you from a personal perspective, though, because you are now dealing with patients who you know um, will die and will die imminently as well. Has that been different for you personally having to deal with more of that? Well, I guess I haven't been dealing with more of that because that's that's really what we do um, as oncologists. I mean, essentially, we have two roles and we often offer chemotherapy to try and prevent cancers from recurring. And the other facet of what we do is that when disease does come back and it is in curable. The, we are facing a situation where our patients do die and that, and that's part of, that's what we've trained to do and that's what we part of the reason of what we why we do what we do is to help people facing that kind of situation and, and come to terms with their own mortality. Mm. What, what I guess has been the big shift has been the fact that many of these people can't attend clinics and have have required home visits and I think that's also added a a different perspective to how I treat patients in terms of seeing them in their own home and seeing what they can do and what their setup is like. Mm. Um, and it, it also gives me an insight into them as a person when I see some of the, you know, photos on their walls and what they prioritise and care about um, surrounding them. Mm. Um, it's been really quite eye-opening from that point of view. Dr. McLaren, it's been a year since the voluntary assisted dying laws came into effect in Victoria. If you had to give the state a report card this last year, what would you say has been working and what hasn't been? I think what it it boils down to is what is working is that this legislation is available, is accessible, and people are dying peacefully in their homes at a time that they choose, surrounded by the people they love. It is is working. Um, It was never going to work 100% right from the outset and I think the biggest not mistake but 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 perhaps missed opportunity was to have a short review period on the legislation because I believe it's five years so I don't think we'll be able to do anything until then until five years after it's been implemented but what's not working I guess is certainly that interplay with the with telehealth so that we can't telehealth into patients we can't conduct those assessments in any other ways other than a home visit um, and that's led to a, a low uptake by doctors and, and and difficult in access particularly in rural areas uh, what's not what else is not working is that, pa- that we're not allowed to discuss this with patients as an option I guess with every other medical treatment we're, you know we're obliged to inform patients of all of their options before we can consent them to any this is a, a legal option and it should not be stigmatized by saying that, you know, das is verboten and we're not allowed to, to talk about it. I think that's that's a bit restricting and Im- impacting into how we practice medicine, which is not what politics should be doing. 
That was Dr. Cam McLaren there with us. And tomorrow we've actually got a special weekend briefing for you. We're going in-depth with Andrew Denton. Now, he has been one of Australia's most vocal advocates for assisted dying. Yeah, you might know him most recently for hosting the interview on Channel 7. He's widely respected as one of the best interviewers in the Australian media. He's a really interesting character, but this is an issue he he took really personally after the death of his dad. And he's travelled the world looking at how other countries do it. So we're going to find out what he thinks about the way the Victorian laws have worked and when he thinks that every Australian will have access to this choice. Yeah, that is a special weekend briefing with Andrew Denton. Cop that in your feed tomorrow. Speak to you then. Bye. A Podcast One production.